Hello and welcome to this episode of Physical Attraction, where we will be talking about some of the intersections, the interactions, the parallels between climate change and the coronavirus. So having ranted at far too great a length about the parallels between the politicised debate around climate change and the politicised debate around COVID-19, I want to talk about how the two potentially interact with each other. Very early on in this crisis, there were a few articles and a general sentiment, particularly when the disease was localised to China, and particularly in the West, that there might be some kind of climate silver lining from coronavirus. The idea here was that emissions would decrease due to the general reduction in transport, economic and industrial activity. It's true that emissions have gone down due to lockdown. This was quantified in a paper released in Nature Climate Change. It was called Temporary Reduction in Daily Global CO2 Emissions During the COVID-19 Forced Confinement. But the effect has been quite small. According to the paper's abstract, daily global CO2 emissions decreased by 17%, between 11 and 25% for plus or minus one standard deviation by early April 2020, compared with the mean 2019 levels, just under half from changes in surface transport. At their peak, emissions in individual countries decreased by 26% on average. The impact on 2020 annual emissions depends on the duration of the confinement, with a low estimate of minus 4%, between minus 2 and minus 7%, if pre-pandemic conditions return by mid-June, and a high estimate of minus 7% if some restrictions remain worldwide until the end of 2020. Now there are a couple of points to make here. One is very obvious, but I would be remiss if I didn't make it. The effect of our emissions is cumulative. CO2 lasts for hundreds of years in the atmosphere. So climate change is still getting worse. We'll still have record CO2 concentrations and likely record temperatures in many places this year. All that this has done is slow down the rate at which we're making the problem worse. It's effectively the same as saying that we are going slightly less into debt when it comes to climate this month compared to other months, but we still have a huge debt to pay off. And indeed, if the 7% figure for the year as a whole is true, then the emissions reductions down to the whole pandemic this year has effectively bought us about an extra month in our fight against climate change of current emissions. One point I think this pandemic has made clear is that it is in fact possible for people to undergo incredibly rapid behavioural changes if they feel that it's for the greater good. People have drastically reduced their transport habits, staying at home as much as possible. Global air traffic has rapidly reduced by around two-thirds in the last few weeks. If you're listening to this, there has probably been some disruption to your life. The reduced economic activity has been vast. China's GDP may have shrunk by 40% during the lockdown, and the EU is projected to drop in GDP by 7%. Now, GDP is a flawed, flawed measure, of course, but it does measure overall economic activity somewhat well. And it seems likely that, temporary or not, Based on those metrics, this is the worst recession since the Great Depression. And yet the benefit that we've had from this massive upheaval on behalf of millions of people, climate-wise, has been very small indeed. Now it's true that these actions and these behavioural changes were not designed to minimise CO2 emissions, it's just an accidental byproduct from what we've done. Perhaps if we went into some sort of lockdown for the climate, we could get more reductions. At the same time though, it's obvious that the cost has been huge and the reduced level of activity is going to be unsustainable for more than a few months in most countries. So this is not a perfect analogy, but what it seems to suggest and support to me is what's been mathematically obvious for quite a long time. Individual lifestyle changes can only ever be a part of what we need to do against climate change. An important part, maybe, but certainly not all, and certainly not even the main part. And it should illustrate the scale of the challenge to all of us, Because all this disruption and upheaval and recession may just reduce emissions by around 7%. And according to the UN's climate change report, in order to keep to below 1.5c of global warming, 
we would need to reduce global emissions by 7.6% every year from now until 2030. Obviously, doing this through demand-side measures alone, changing our behaviour to reduce emissions, is simply going to be impossible. Just look at how much has had to change to reduce emissions by only 7%. It should be clearer than ever, then, that when it comes to tackling climate change and our massive emissions problem, we are going to get nowhere with any kind of small, symbolic gestures. We need to be extremely ambitious. We need to remake society, and we need to displace fossil fuels wherever they are used. In transport, for planes and automobiles, in buildings when it comes to heating and air conditioning, in power production, in the places where fossil fuels are still used to generate electricity, and in industry, where processes like cement making and steel making produce large amounts of CO2. And as much as possible, in agriculture, where growing herds of cattle result in deforestation, land use changes, and increasing methane emissions. This result and this framing of the coronavirus pandemic, this point that behaviour change on its own is not enough, reminds me of a famous MIT study which showed that even if you had no possessions at all, just the bare minimum that it was required to survive in the US, that would still result in emissions of two tonnes of CO2 per year, well above the global average, purely because of the embodied emissions in that bare minimum of shelter and food that it required for you to live. In other words, in a society as addicted to carbon as the United States, there are no lifestyle changes great enough for you to make that will solve the problem of climate change, because of how deeply embedded the dependence on fossil fuels is in society. That study was many years ago now, and things have improved since then, but I still think the basic point is true. Systemic change is required. Everyone has just undergone very dramatic lifestyle changes, and it's barely put a dent in global CO2 emissions. This, incidentally, is why I'm sceptical when I see fossil fuel companies like Exxon and Shell tweeting out carbon footprint calculators. Keeping track of your own personal contribution to climate change, and trying to minimise it, is obviously important and something you should do. And if the actions that you take can influence other people, then there's clearly a behavioural impact to that. But it will be meaningless without that systemic change which is required to seriously cut emissions. And this is why I'm also very concerned that there is going to be any kind of silver lining for the climate crisis to come out of the coronavirus crisis. I don't think there will be one at all. Because the truth is, there won't be any kind of silver lining here unless we work for it, unless we act to insist that it's part of the recovery. The real risk, the most likely case here, is that governments are focused on virus response and for years and then economic response for years after that, and any kind of climate policy gets delayed. And when there is bandwidth to try and deal with this again, it's argued that there's not enough money in light of the recession and in light of the huge economic costs and bills to pay from trying to contain the virus in the way that we're doing right now. That would be a disaster when right now we actually have a chance to build things back better than they were before. And the good news, because I do feel obliged to give you some, is that the technology to do this is here, it's ready, and it's cheaper than ever before. And I don't think that as many people know about this as should. Some examples. Offshore wind prices have simply plummeted in recent years. Here in the UK, offshore wind projects can bid for a contract for difference, an average price at which they can sell the electricity. If the price of electricity is lower when they sell the power, the government pays them to make up for the difference. If the price is higher, then they pay the government. The price then is set on what's going to allow the companies to make their projects profitably. So you'll agree on a price that you'll get paid per megawatt hour and the government guarantees that minimum price and that's the form of the subsidy. So effectively you're bidding in this reverse auction against each other. Company A says, oh I can make the wind farm and I'll make it profitable at only £35 per megawatt hour. Company B will try and outbid them by bidding for 30 for example. For projects starting in 2017, 
that price was £167 per megawatt hour. But the price for the most recently announced projects, which were due to start in 2023, is just £44 per megawatt hour, with the cheapest project coming in at under £40 per megawatt hour. So from 167 to under 40 In just five or six years, the price has effectively fallen by nearly 70%. Wind now supplies 20% of the UK's electricity alone, and by 2023 in the UK, it could be cheaper to build a brand new offshore wind plant than to generate electricity, than it is to continue to operate an existing natural gas plant. You would actually save money by shutting down fossil fuel plants immediately and building renewables instead. As these machines are being built, they are getting more efficient. The average capacity factor, which basically is the nameplate capacity, the percentage of that that actually generates on average. So for example, if your wind turbine has a nominal capacity of 2 megawatts, and on average it generates 1 megawatt, Uh, when you take into account times when the wind is not going and so on, and the efficiency of the device itself, then that would be a nameplate capacity factor of 50%. Now that capacity factor, the percentage that's being generated due to efficiency, intermittency, and when you supply power to the grid, that's gone up from 20% in 2009 to 34% on average today, largely as the turbines have got larger and more efficient and better integrated onto the grid. The same story is true in solar panels, perhaps even more stunningly. The price to build one watt of solar panel capacity has fallen from $76 in 1977 to $0.25 in 2017. The levelised cost of electricity from solar panels, this is the uh, way of measuring the cost of electricity generated that includes the cost to build the thing, the cost for maintenance, the cost for fuel, etc. This levelised cost of electricity for solar panels has fallen from $320 per megawatt hour in 2009 to around $35 per megawatt hour in the US in 2018. This means that in just a decade, the cost has plummeted by around 90%, according to Lazard, and it's now less than half the price of coal and nuclear, and cheaper than natural gas. Furthermore, the cost is projected to continue to decline, with IRENA, the International Renewable Energy Association, suggesting a further cost halving could be in the pipeline in the next decade. And this is before you even take into account new and disruptive solar technologies that are being developed. Meanwhile, the price and efficiency of thermal generation turbines, fossil fuel power plants, etc., is the same as ever, and the price of the fuels themselves is volatile and fluctuates depending on supply and demand. In fact, according to analysis from Bloomberg New Energy Finance, renewables are now the cheapest form of electricity generation for at least two-thirds of the global population, in areas that account for 71% of global GDP and 85% of electricity generation. So for 85% of electricity generation at the moment, renewables would be the cheapest way of providing that, and they're still getting cheaper. Battery storage to provide backups for the generation and for electric cars has fallen from around $1,200 per kilowatt hour in 2010 to around $180 per kilowatt hour in 2018. So the cost of batteries has plummeted by around 85% and still has much further to fall. The point that I want to make here is that the people who formed their opinions about renewable energy even 10 years ago, when I was in high school even, these opinions are now hopelessly out of date. And this is really the most hopeful thing about the climate crisis at the moment. Because sadly, John Keynes was right when he said, quote, The ideas of economists and political theorists, whether they are right or wrong, are more powerful than is commonly believed. People who consider themselves to be perfectly rational are more often or not the slaves of some defunct economist. It would be incredibly hard, an incredibly difficult struggle, to decarbonise society if it was very expensive to do. The fact that it's now cheap to at least generate massive amounts of renewable electricity gives us a shot. 
which is a good job too, because we may need to double or even quadruple electricity generation to electrify transport and heating, according to the Independent Committee on Climate Change in the UK by 2050, which are two huge sources of carbon emissions. This is transport and heating, beyond simply power generation. If anything, power generation is the low-hanging fruit of decarbonisation, even though there's still much work to be done there globally. So there is reason for optimism, at least on these grounds. We have seen truly remarkable cost reductions in renewables. Previously, the energy transition was just the right thing to do for climate, the environment, for living in a sustainable world, and for global security, for reducing the air pollution that leads to one in six premature deaths, and for providing cheap and modular electricity to remote communities, to the billion people who don't have electricity. So it's been the right thing to do for many, many years. But now it's indisputably also the right thing to do for the economy. Electric cars, heat pumps, and alternative methods of generating heat for industry are likely to come down in price substantially as well over the years, as these industries scale up. But it's still a transition. It doesn't happen by magic. It requires action. Part of the flaw in idealised economic theory is the assumption that if things make economic sense, then they tend to automatically happen. But plenty of things we could have done to decarbonise have negative costs, that is to say, an economically rational person would do them because they would save money. An economically rational person would drive around in a car that's fuel efficient to save money and save the planet. But instead, people choose gas-guzzling SUVs that are extremely inefficient at converting fuel into motion. Indeed, apparently, SUVs alone were the second biggest contributor to the rise in CO2 emissions between 2010 and 2019. Economically rational, climate-conscious people would not buy a car that's more expensive to buy and run, and yet they do. Similarly, there are plenty of energy efficiency measures and replacements which could be made, which would both save money and reduce carbon emissions, and yet they aren't happening. Many socio-technical analyses of emissions to try and set a carbon price determine what price you'd need to put on a tonne of CO2 that's emitted to ensure that it was cheaper to avoid emitting it than to pay the price for emitting it. But many of them find that a huge fraction of our current emissions could be avoided at a carbon price of $0, for negative money. In other words, there are actions we could take that would save money and reduce emissions. Yet these things don't happen by themselves. In fact, nearly $600 billion worldwide is potentially due to be spent now on coal-fired power plants that are more expensive than the alternatives, and that may end up being retired prematurely anyway, because they cost too much to run. The key word here is inertia. Changing systems takes time. It takes effort you have to replace what's actively there. And we're talking about replacing a huge amount of the current system. We're talking about replacing every fossil fuel powered car, every fossil fuel powered heating system, every fossil fuel power plant that's running. Let's give an example to make this concrete. And we're gonna get into some quite considerable detail here. So get your detailed hats on and be prepared to listen to quite a lot about this. One of the things we need to do to wean ourselves off of fossil fuels would be to change the system that we have for heating our homes. Here in the UK, we currently have 22 million homes with gas-fired boilers. The same is true over many of the colder regions in high latitudes. 14% of the UK's emissions come from households, many of them down to these gas boilers, so it's not a minor thing on our path to net zero. In fact, for the UK, which has substantially reduced its CO2 emissions from power plants, it's now about as much as our emissions from power plants coming from these gas boilers. Typically, people keep their boilers for between 10 and 15 years, So even if every new boiler was carbon neutral, we'd need a decade or more right there for natural replacements to phase out these boilers. But in fact, the boilers and heating systems being installed now are not carbon neutral. Last year, in 2019, 
a record number of gas boilers were sold, around 1.7 million in the UK. Clearly figures like this are disastrous, as every one of those purchases is locking people into a high carbon system. After all, it's much more expensive to your household finances to replace something brand new, compared to something old that you would have replaced anyway. There are many different estimates for the cost of replacing these old boilers with something carbon neutral. The UK's Independent Committee on Climate Change estimated that it would cost £26,300 to install the best standard of low-carbon heating into an old home, but just £4,300 to do so in a new home. This is the price of locking in these high-carbon technologies in the new homes that are being built at the moment, yet there is still no law requiring new homes to be built with heat pumps instead of gas boilers. Now you can't straightforwardly multiply this price by the number of boilers to work out the cost. That's because obviously every home and every measure will be different. Some of these costs would be borne anyway in replacing old boilers, and the efficiency and gas bill savings would also help offset these costs over time. So it's a similar means to saying, you know, since people buy new cars on a fairly regular basis every decade, you can't just multiply the cost by electric cars and say that this is one lump sum, because a lot of that would have been spent on cars anyway. But it gives you some idea of the vague scale of the amount of investment that would be required to truly decarbonise the UK's housing stock. Let's say a new government took over tomorrow, and, rather counterintuitively right now perhaps, decided that its greatest priority was to decarbonise the UK's housing and its heating. They might immediately start a programme of retrofitting, building low-carbon heating into old homes. Let's say the solution, for the sake of simplicity, is to give every one of these homes a heat pump. There are actually several different solutions, some of them will be worth it for... There are actually several different solutions, some of them will be worth it for different places and different people, but we'll simplify for now. Currently, just 30,000 new heat pumps are installed in the UK every year. So if you want the heat pump industry to take over from gas boilers entirely, you need to get at least 50 times bigger, installing 1.5 million heat pumps a year, similar to the rate of gas boiler installation today. Then, over the next decade or so, you'd gradually phase out all of those gas boilers as they're replaced by heat pumps. When you look at the inertia of a system like this, suddenly the cost of no action is much clearer. If we want to be carbon neutral by 2050, as the UK's current target is, which some argue is too late given that this is a wealthy industrialised nation that should be acting earlier than others, then we need to make sure that no new gas boilers are being installed by 2035 or 40 or so, and that the heat pump industry is ready to take over. For that, the industry has 15 years now to become 50 times bigger than it is today. It would need to double in size basically every three years, and keep doing it until it's ready to take over. Needless to say, heat pumps are nowhere near on track to do this right now. We would need to start training the engineers who can service many tens or hundreds of thousands of heat pumps right now, just to get things in place to be done by 2050. On the subject of heat in the UK's gas network in particular, while we're talking about it a side note, one of the solutions that often is mentioned is hydrogen. Indeed, there are currently a few schemes going on to inject some hydrogen into the UK's gas network alongside natural gas, although this can only be done by 5-10% at the moment without significantly changing how the network works. Hydrogen can theoretically be produced through electrolysis, basically running an electrical current through water to separate the H2 from the O. So it's possible to have green hydrogen, produced from abundant solar or wind electricity, which can then be converted into a fuel that can be burned. The problem is that at the moment, most hydrogen is not made this way. Instead it's made from fossil fuels, including a process called steam methane reforming, where natural gas is converted into hydrogen, emitting CO2 in the process. Estimates vary, but perhaps 90-95% to of hydrogen sold at the moment is made from fossil fuels and not green hydrogen. Of course this can change, especially if and when renewables get very cheap indeed, 
but it's worth bearing in mind when this is proposed as a solution. The reason I've gone into such depth here is to point out that actually, shutting down coal-fired power plants and replacing them with natural gas or renewables is the easy part in reducing our emissions. There are relatively few actors in the electricity generation field. It's easier for government to regulate it and to intervene to provide incentives that will make companies switch generation methods, or to shut down or regulate the relatively small number of power plants that will exist. There's much more inertia, and it's much harder to shift. The millions of people who are involved in making decisions about buying gas boilers or fossil fuel powered cars. To do all of this globally, it's a huge, huge undertaking, even if it will save money and the planet in the long run. And that's going to require a lot of upfront effort and investment. It's a truly monumental task, especially when there are still powerful industrial lobbyists that have successfully obfuscated the science and still act to make the solutions seem harder than they are. This is not an easy thing to do. And this is the worry with the coronavirus depression. If that investment in terms of finance and effort is not there, then we're going to find it very difficult to solve this problem. The key is not to cut back on our activities and do nothing, but to reshape society so it can run on a more sustainable footing, and that means changing the systems that already exist. So while the temporary reduction to emissions is likely to only be temporary, after all, we saw after the global recession in 2009, emissions briefly dipped by a percentage or two, and then shot up again in subsequent years. In fact, there's some evidence that a fossil fuel recovery may have increased emissions in some places, where money was spent on big infrastructure projects that were less sustainable to stimulate the economy after a crash, which is the exact opposite of what we'd want. It's not just me saying this, though. Even the relatively conservative Financial Times published an op-ed effectively calling for this. They wrote, quote, If there is one early lesson to be drawn from the COVID-19 crisis, it's that governments must be better prepared for the worst. The pandemic has shown the lethal folly of ignoring expert warnings about the need to be ready for calamity, no matter how remote or uncertain it may seem. This should be uppermost in leaders' minds as they struggle to rebuild stricken economies in the face of rising calls to abandon measures to address another global threat. Climate change. Unlike COVID-19, the world has had ample evidence of the damaging effects of global warming for decades. Governments today still have a chance to mitigate these. They should do this so as part of the effort to rebuild after the virus. Given the scale of the economic damage wrought by the coronavirus, by the prospect of mass unemployment, policymakers face a difficult balancing act. Do they preserve the status quo and rely on fossil fuels to revive their stricken economies, or launch new policies to promote a green economic recovery? They should choose the latter, says the Financial Times, and emulate the example of President Franklin D. Roosevelt. His New Deal used state-funded infrastructure and employment initiatives to push the US economy out of the Great Depression. Today's government should use their spending power to help stimulate a recovery from the virus that does not lock in a fossil-fueled economy. End quote. It feels then that this is a really critical time for our fight against climate change. We have an opportunity in the midst of this crisis to change how we do things. Just as the New Deal used government stimulus to develop infrastructure and reduce unemployment, we could do the same to solve unemployment and accelerate the transition into a greener, more sustainable economy as well. We can build back in a way that makes us stronger for the future. There are a couple of things I want to point out. One is some speculation from Zeke Horsfather, who is a very good analyst on all things climate change. He noted in a seminar for Carbon Brief, which is a newspaper that deals with climate-related issues, that it's just possible that 2019 may end up being the year of peak emissions. The reason for this is that gradually, economic growth is decoupling from CO2 emissions. Historically, the fact that our economy was always growing inexorably dragged up CO2 emissions with it. Larger populations, more industry, more energy generation, more transport, and more CO2. Recently, 
as societies began to reduce their dependence on fossil fuels, we were starting to see that the carbon intensity of GDP was going down. In other words, more economic growth was occurring with less carbon emissions. Previously, this effect cancelled out. The economic growth was more than offsetting improvements in carbon intensity. But it's just possible, says Zeke, that if trends in economic growth and carbon intensity continue as they have, we may have seen the peak year for global emissions. And they might finally, after centuries, begin to decline. I think this is something hopeful to hang on to, but it's also something that we all need to work towards. Finally, I have a sense that there may be some people listening who feel like this sounds like agenda pushing. In other words, they might say now is not the time to try and exploit this crisis to push for other things on your agenda, such as decarbonisation. To this I have two things to say. The first is that the people who already wield power and influence in society don't need to ask politely when they want to exploit a crisis to push their own agenda. They just silently wield their power to do it. See what happened historically with quantitative easing after the global financial crisis, which actually made economic inequality worse after that crisis, even according to relatively staid bodies like the Bank of England that did it in the first place. Watch what happens with bailouts for various different industries now. By comparison, no, I don't feel bad about suggesting that we should take a course of action that would benefit all of us, both now and in the future. And finally, I would just suggest that if people learn one thing from COVID-19, it's that ignoring scientific warnings is futile, because the crisis really doesn't care if you're burying your head in the sand. And that acting as early as you possibly can to prevent a crisis from getting worse makes far, far more sense than the unbelievably difficult task of trying to adapt to a full-scale emergency when it's already too late. As one of the scientists from the World Health Organization said, quote, everything you do before a pandemic seems like an overreaction. Everything you do afterwards seems inadequate. We see this in coronavirus with countries that moved rapidly to distance and implement testing, tracking and tracing to keep death rates low, compared to countries that have had to try and make up for things later. And we see it also in climate change. Getting to that 1.5c target is getting harder by the day, it may already be impossible. If emissions had peaked in 2000, we would only need to reduce them by 3% a year to get to 1.5c. If emissions do genuinely peak in 2019, then we require 15% a year reductions to get to the same level. Prevaricating when you're trying to address a rapidly worsening crisis is a deadly mistake. You have to act rapidly to head disaster off at the pass, because nature won't wait. And if we won't learn this lesson now, when will we learn? Thank you for listening to this episode of Physical Attraction. You can find us on the web at physicspodcast.com where you'll find the contact form. Comments, questions or concerns can go there. You'll find us on Twitter at physicspod, on Facebook, Physical Attraction. You can leave reviews for us on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts, which help us to get noticed. One of the things you can always do to help the show is to tell as many other people who would like to listen to it about it, particular episodes that you've enjoyed and so on. Um, I try and respond to all the emails that come in through the contact forms. That's a good way of getting in touch with us. On the website, you'll also find a PayPal tip jar where you can donate some money if you think that what we're doing is worthwhile. And there's a Patreon, which you can subscribe to, where you will pay a small amount of money for any bonus episodes that I get around to recording and releasing. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and that you all stay safe and take care. Thank you.